James Hahn II. And I'm Mark LaCour. And you're listening to This Week in Oil and Gas. This is the show for busy oil pros who want to quickly keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Episode number 34, almost as old as me, Mr. LaCour. How you doing today? I'm busy, but doing great. And it's awesome that we've made it this far down the pipe. Yeah, it is awesome. We've got a lot to celebrate today. We'll get to that later in the show. First, I am celebrating Mark do you know I have two new pages on my website? Oh, my God. Two new pages. Please tell. <laughs> you should. <laughs> You're not winning any Oscars <laughs> with that performance. Yes. You, uh, why don't you fill them in, man? Uh, James, I can't fill them in. I'm not even sure exactly what you did, dude. <laughs> oh, you didn't even look? You didn't even look? I looked, but I don't remember. I'm having to try to remember these 10 um, – tabs of information right all right yeah so um a lot of people for a long time have been going what the heck do you do how can you help um you know twenty five thousand visitors a month to the website um not nearly enough leads probably because i didn't have a very clear services tab so now i have a services tab with a market research page and a training page and so the market research around uh, your brand story. Does your brand story connect in the marketplace? And then the training, kind of a condensed version of that extended research. Do your prospects understand how you do what you do? So I am James Han II from TribeRocket.com, tra- targeted traffic, qualified leads, and closed sales. And I said market research a couple of times. Mark, isn't that what you do? Yeah, it's uh, Mark with MotorPoint.com. We do market research, but in a little bit different vein. So we actually go out and talk to the oil and gas industry and figure out where your product or service fits. So if you look at what James and I do, I'm sort of like the first step and he is naturally the second step. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So wherever you fit, and then I come in and help you with the story. And we have a lot of stories to get into today, starting with China. Chinese energy giants oversees buyouts back in the pipeline. Yeah, this is actually a really great article in uh, Chinese business, and it's talking about how the the acquisitions by the big national Chinese um, oil and gas companies have dropped off, but they're still acquiring stuff. And you know, when I say drop off, when you go from you know, um, um, you know, three and three to four billion dollars to two point eight billion dollars, it's still a lot of acquisitions. And it's interesting to see that the two of the biggest uh, nationalized oil companies in China, Sinoc and PetroChina, both have a slightly different approach, right? So CNOC is basically saying that with these low oil prices, this is the time to acquire stuff. And PetroChina is saying it doesn't really matter about the low oil prices. When you find a good buy, you buy it. So this is a, a good article with a lot of um, um, good factual information on what's going on in the state of acquisitions in China when you're looking at China uh, investing internationally, not internally. So they, they talk about um, continued corruption, crackdown, a lot of corruption yeah. in China. Yeah, duh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and what's happened is it's gotten to the point internationally where people don't want to do business with Chinese companies. And I've actually run into that myself with, with my, my customers. So um, the Chinese government has realized that in order to continue to grow, they need to crack down on corruption. And like most things, when the Chinese government makes up their mind to do something, it starts happening. Now, unfortunately, um, unlike the U.S. and Europe, where you'll see people that are involved in corruption be brought to trial, in China, sometimes they just disappear. But China's government's cracking down on corruption, which is a good thing overall. Good thing that they're cracking down on corruption. Maybe not so much the liberty, but hey, 
they're communist. What do you expect? Yep. All right. So moving from China to Iran and then next to Russia, we're just going to go across the <laughs> across the globe there. We didn't so, do that on purpose, people. <laughs> yeah, I did. Oh, yeah, did. <laughs> I did that on purpose. So but this I, I, I picked this one up because uh, I'm always looking for that contrarian perspective. And Iran's tentative nuclear deal may not mean an international oil boom. What's this guy saying? So this is we've kind of touched this in the past. The amount of oil, if the sanctions are lifted, which it looks like they will be lifted, the amount of oil they can actually dump in the market is not huge. It's not really much bigger than significant. And then the other piece that's going on is you have a lot of the the big international players, uh, Shell, Total, Any, that are looking at this and going, you know what? I'm not quite sure politically if this is the best place for us to invest our resources and money because there's still so much of a gray area. So without the big um, the, the the big super majors coming in and helping. Um, with production, they may not actually get much online and out, out there because what's happening right now is they need help. They they have the reserves. They just can't get the oil out of the ground, and they need help, and they need the help from the big you know, super majors, and, and the super majors may not just step in because they're not quite sure it would be a safe investment. So it, it mentions the day, and I can't really find in, uh, a specific date about the, quote, day of implementation. When is this happening? So that, that's it's kind of a squirrely thing. So the way the the sanction the 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 um, the, the way the sanction lifting is going to be done is that when the consortium of European and American inspectors are allowed to go on site and see that they have actually met the the uh, specification of this agreement, then that is the day. Which means there's actually no date. You can't actually put a date around it because it's when everybody agrees that the inspectors go in there and they inspect and they see that they've uh, dismantled the centrifuges and they've they backed off on the enrichment of uranium. So, but that that's the parameters of them actually starting lifting the sanctions. Wow. So how long could that take? It's actually probably going to happen relatively soon. The, the, the people are desperate over there. The government sees it. Even the Ayatollah, who's the 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 fifty percent, the religious leader of not not the government, but the religious leader of the country, has bought into this. So um, they need they know they need to get their oil in the market in order to start feeding their people, developing their country, and they realize that they can't do it without these sanctions being lifted. So, you know, this is um, this is October. I would not be surprised if this is done before the end of this year. And. And, and once it happens, it, what what is the the basic thesis that he's saying? You 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 gave us the kind of ten thousand foot view before. You said it's infrastructure and just getting things up and running. Oh, I mean, it's literally stuff like well stimulation and, and building you know terminals and then building pipelines and eventually probably building refining capacity. That there's literally nothing left because this country's been racked with war and everything's been destroyed. Got it. Yeah, and then you got your neighbors. Uh, not helping with that either. Um, yeah, no. <laughs> definitely not. All right. So Russia and the new geopolitics of oil. I know you love some geopolitics and some oil. So what's going on here? Yeah, so this is this is the the continuing shift of, of the Russia's geopolitical um, problem. So Russia, because of the sanctions and because of the increasing uh, Middle East um, exporting to Europe, and then because of uh, uh, the U.S. pretty soon will be exporting to Europe, they're losing that market, right? That market has been their breadbasket. That's who's made all their money. So they're having to shift that market to Asia. Um, but that's that's a lot of work. It's a lot of everything from legal agreements to um, logistic nightmares because you're shipping crude natural gas to a different part of the world to, to long-term political alliances. So um, – 
this is probably going to be a long-term effective on Russia. And it doesn't look like we're going to lift this, you know, us in Europe are going to lift the sanctions anytime soon. So they have no other route other than to sell to Asia. Now, what's going to be interesting is as they lose this market share in Europe and as um, the Middle East and the U.S. start gathering that market share, what are we going to do? It may make some strange allies between the U.S. and the Middle East because neither one of us want Russia to come back into power. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens in the next three or four years. Yeah, but isn't uh, didn't uh, Putin just send uh, bombers into Iran? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And and you know that's a hard one to call. Um, I actually have a contact in Russia who's in the oil and gas industry who maybe one day will actually get on the show. And what's kind of disheartening to me is there's a bit a difference between what he's telling me behind the lines in Russia on what's really going on in the oil and gas industry, and then what I'm able to get from the U.S. and the European news. So I, I take what I get from the news with the, the bombings from Russia and, and the, the military action with a grain of salt now. For the most part, I think they're trying to do the right thing. They, they are trying to prop up the existing government, but they are trying to take ISIS out as well. Um, so it's, it's, you know, let's give this a little bit of time and let's actually see what happens over there. Yeah, I, I was actually witness to a Russian, uh, whatever, government lie, if you will, um, in the year, uh, it was 2000, when I was over in Rome with, you know, 1.5 of my million, million of my closest friends at World Youth Day with the Pope, uh, St. John Paul II, uh, now. And so that was when the Russian sub sank. I don't remember the name of it, but usually... Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, when the Russian sub sank. What was fascinating to watch is you know I you know I was a journalism major and all this stuff and so I was kind of picking apart how they were how they were basically propagandizing this thing and right. you watched I mean I I watched it happen live where they they had the guy on the ship just straight up lying just making up stories right we are hearing tapping okay now we're hearing this okay now this is happening now this is ha- none of that happened at all. Right. None of it. And and so yeah, you're definitely right to take things with a grain of salt because I've I've seen it unfold uh you know before my eyes and it's it's incredible that that a that a government could do that. But hey, it's Russia. What do you expect? Yeah. Well when you have state sponsored media that they have all of the control. I mean I make fun of our media all the time, but at least we get differences of opinion here. Right, right. And and so one thing that uh you know, I listened to the Common Sense podcast uh, with uh, Dan Carlin, and, and he, he he mentioned about how we, he, in his perspective, we got caught flat-footed, like whoa, all of a sudden they're sending in these bombers. But not that point. The point that that he mentioned that really struck a chord with me is that all of a sudden ISIS is in control of oil wells in Syria. Yeah, and I mean that's how they they're making the money. And let me let me tell you some of the some of the military reports I've read. Uh, regardless of what you think politically about Russia's doing, ISIS, parts of ISIS are running scared, right? They're not worried about the U.S. and European arguing over stuff. There's freaking Russian boots on the ground, right? They're sending 40 fighter planes. So you can, you know, it's, it's at, at some point there is some good being done by this because somebody stood up and go, you know what? We're going to just, we're going to just carpet bomb you until you don't exist anymore. <laughs> I liked Dan's Dan's uh, again Dan Dan Carlin the Common Sense podcast. I'll uh, I'll link that in the show notes. But he he he's pretty entertaining with with this conclusion. He's like, you know, maybe it's not so bad that that you know there's another power in the world that 
you know, can go in and do things and have the world hate them. (laughs) Don't forget history. You know, Russia was an ally of ours during World War II. Mm, That's a good point. And and so this is incredible to me, though. ISIS enjoys a crude output of 34 uh, to 40,000 barrels per day, banking an estimated $1.5 million per day. Where is that money going throughout the Middle East? Where, where, where is it coming from or where is it going? Well, both ways because it, – So it, it's, it, being, it's being sold in what's called the gray market, the right? The gray market, okay. Yeah, so I sell – I have crude that I shouldn't be able to sell because it's on the black market. I sell it to a country like Turkey who, where there's no records being kept. Then Turkey goes and sells it to somebody like Brazil and has legitimate records. And it's hard for Europe and the U.S. to figure out where that oil is coming from, so the gray market. Um, so and it's, it's like money going, laundering. Yeah, I mean, and the and the money's going to fund ISIS. If you know, I said this in the very beginning. If we would ignore ISIS completely and cut off their funds, they would just disappear. That's incredible. And so you have you have state leaders um, in various places in the Middle East that are just like, yeah, we know that we're getting it from ISIS, but hey, you know, we're getting it on the it's cheap. Layers and layers of corruption. So it's hard to say who knows what at the top. Because there's so many layers of corruption between the actual transaction and the actual leaders of the government, but they they have some culpability, absolutely. All right. So moving on, uh, coming to the state side, I want to catch up. I we haven't talked about Arctic drilling in a, in a long time. Uh, it's been several episodes anyway. Back then, it looked like you know, hey, this is going on, and and we're in the clear. And then there was some fallout and some blowback and things like this. So can you catch us up on what's going on? Uh, up in Alaska? Yeah, so Shell went did some exploratory Arctic drilling, right? They, they know there's some reservoirs out there. They're trying to figure out if they're recoverable. During that time, that's when you saw the protests in Portland with the kayakers and the plastic kayaks from the Polypropylene oil and gas industry kayaks. protesting about Arctic drilling, which just is the most hypocritical thing you could possibly imagine. Um, Shell got through everything. Everything was permitted. They got all their safety equipment in place. They went out and did some exploratory drilling. And basically, they said, you know what? In this low crude price market, it's not economically feasible. So they said, we don't want this. We're not, we're not moving forward. And I think they spent about $7 billion doing this. And then um, you know, a couple of companies had leases in the Gulf of Mexico, Statoil and uh, Shell. And, and basically, just recently, the, um, the U.S. government says, you know what? We're going to reject those leases. Now, Statoil and Shell says, okay, we, we work control there anyway. That's fine. So um, it looks like the current administration is trying to play both sides of the fence, right? So they, they, they like the money. They like the income. And they, like, they, they understand the fact that you want somebody like Statoil or Shell or Exxon or somebody drilling Arctic versus CNOC or a Russian company because of the difference in environmental impact. But at the same time, they're trying to appeal to environmentalists so they're able to say, hey, we revoke these leases. What they don't say is we revoke these leases after Shell says we're not going to drill there. <laughs> you can't so, fire me. I quit. Yeah. I mean, you know, so it's, 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 it's a little bit tongue in cheek. You know, once the price of crude goes up, eventually we'll start developing the Arctic. We figured out we can do it safely. It's just, we can't do it economically right now. So that's interesting because yeah, even though it was sort of out there in the ether and I, I heard about it here and there, uh, my, the main narrative that I was kind of picking up was that the government shut it down. So, so it's good to know that, that that's not, actually the fact and you know can't be surprised that that was the story coming from the media yeah and let me throw a little bit in there let me let me tell you who's actually going to be hurt by this and it's alaska so don't think of oil um production but think about while you're exploring 
what does a company need? They need access to docks and bases, right? Their people need to feed, need to have hotels, and you have schools. And all that was going to be in Alaska, right? So Alaska as a whole is going to suffer from the shutdown of Arctic drilling because it won't have all this infrastructure put in place for the exploration. Um, and it's just, you know, I, I, I kind of feel for the people of Alaska. They don't have a lot of options. You know, basically they're fishermen. They are, they work in the oil field and that's it. So, um, you know, hats off to our brothers and sisters out in Alaska. Let's hope that, you know, things start getting a little bit better for them. Amen. How to reduce drilling costs. How do we do that, Mark? Uh, it's basically efficiencies. <laughs> and and this is a good article talking about a BOP, which is a blowout preventer. And a, a BOP is basically a tree, so it controls the well, but you can drill through it. But it so doesn't look like a tree, right? No, it, it actually does look like a tree in, in a lot of ways. But you can actually push it. It looks like a big them. cube, the the one that we saw um, at uh, uh, at Nape, or not Nape, um, OTC. OTC. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a subsea BOP, and a subsea BOP is a big cube, just like a subsea tree is a big cube. And they both usually sit on a mud mat and they're stacked and blah, blah, blah. But the difference, they both do the same thing. They control the well, they keep, they watch the pressures and they make sure nothing gets out of hand. The difference is a tree is what you use while you're drilling. So you can actually have drill shaft that goes through it. And uh, um, I'm sorry, I got that backwards. A blowout preventer is what you use while you're drilling. And then once you go into production, you're not drilling anymore, you replace that with a tree. And this is talking about the downtime of when you have a BOP or a BOP stack. Because there's a lot of maintenance and inspections offshore that you have to do to BOPs. And, and this is, I mean, this article is exactly right. The basic BOP has not changed a lot. The, the controls have changed a little bit. But there's a big gap in doing something called um, plan maintenance and predictive maintenance. And predictive maintenance is where you take all this data and you look at failures and you figure out ahead of time when stuff's going to break or need to be changed and you fix it. So what happens in the airline industry, right? They have all this information, there's all this data on when stuff breaks. And so they know ahead of time that they need to change a wheel bearing after 18,000 hours or whatever, and they do it. So they stay ahead of things failing. And that's what's needed in the offshore oil and gas industry. Unfortunately, that data is owned by the operators. So that tree that might be built by FMC or, or, or Shell, I mean, FMC or Cameron is sold to Shell. And Shell has that data that they could do predictive maintenance on. But Shell doesn't want anybody to see that data because it's their secret sauce. So it's just it's one of those things that it's a, a, a technology improvement that can improve efficiencies. But there needs to be a cultural change in oil and gas industry. And you and I both know trying to change the culture in this industry is is a patience, patience tester. Yeah, yeah. So would there be a, a consequence in terms of what am I trying to say here? In terms of competition, you said it's their secret sauce. I mean, is it really secret? I mean, what's yeah, going on it there? Is. Because there's a bunch of things going on. They're injecting all kinds of stuff. They're at different pressures and whatever, and they don't want their competitors to know what they're doing to maximize production. Um, and, and you know, will that ever get fixed? I, probably not. I, you know, I, it's, it's, it's just too big a cultural jump. So let me let me jump in here. What what would be what would be wrong with having your competition know how to maximize production? Wouldn't that just help everyone? All boats rising or whatever they say. So both companies would benefit, but when you're a public company that has shares, uh, basically you want people to invest money and have faith in your shares, not your competition. So whatever delta that you can put between yourself and your competition increases your shareholder value. So that's why each each one of the big super majors, they, they're really a different company. So Exxon 
is an engineering and project management company that gets oil out of the ground. That's their competitive differentiator. Nobody, and sorry for all my friends out there at Shell and Anadarko and everyone else, but in my opinion, there's not a better oil and gas engineer on the planet than Exxon, and nobody can execute big projects like they can. Shell, on the other hand, is a financial company, right? Just happens to get oil and grass out of it. A gas out of the ground. Nobody can manage finances and, and um, cost and um, internal cost of capital like Shell can. You know, Anadarko is is basically a supply chain company. They are excellent at supply chain logistics. You know, and and so on and so on. So they won't ever share stuff that would help even that that competitive advantage. Right. This I mean, is, just like you and you and I wouldn't. I mean, we have competitors, and we wouldn't pick up a phone and say, "Hey, this is how we do it." We just wouldn't do that. Well, I don't know. I write a blog and say how I do it. So I come from the, you know, I'm younger and and I come from a, the open source mind a lot of times. And and I guess this is maybe one of the first articles where my open sourceness is bumping up against the realities of the oil field. And I'm just trying to grapple with uh, how do you um, how do you balance so, those perspectives? So let me put you this way. Let's say that you, Tribe Rocket, spent $20,000 in developing a new technology that allowed you to get websites up quicker. Mm-hmm. Would you share that with your competition? Well, it would naturally be open source because it's on WordPress. So, um, but would I share that with, with, with uh, my competition? I, yeah, I, I mean, I probably write a blog about how we did it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So most companies that would spend their own internal money to develop something to make their business better wouldn't share that with their competition. Yeah. Well, and and this is just the 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 differences and and another thing that that as we were talking earlier about the in this article that was coming to mind was a, a conversation that I heard between who I call the Canadian Seth Godin and Seth Godin, who if nobody's ever heard of Seth Godin, he's a he's a marketing he's like the he's like the Michael Jordan of, of marketing. Like no one questions him. He's just he's he's his own type of genius. And and Mitch Joel was talking to him, and they were talking about this you know a marketer the the marketing sort of um, discrepancy, if you will between the strictly rigorous data people and the and the sort of gut instinct kind of a thing where do you think that those things bridge the gap when it comes to the oil field because analytics is becoming more and more pervasive you know a la drilling info who i love and 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 other you know all kinds of other vendors out there that are doing these types of well analysis and analytics do you think that I mean, this is going to be 10 or 15 years, maybe 20 from now, where it'll take us that long to adopt this type of technology. But but could we ever get to a point where people are relying too much on data and not enough on knowing how to do something? In the world in general, yeah, I think about that quite often. In oil and gas, I don't think so. This is an engineering-centric business, and it has to be, right? So it's math. It's yes and no's. It's black and white. Um you don't guess in this industry. When you guess, stuff blows up. Um, so yeah, I, I don't see it getting there. Now, get back to analytics. I, you know, we're we're getting close to us doing our predictions for twenty six things. We think finally, big data is probably a major business driver. And the constraint with big data is always analytics. Can you eliminate the ninety nine point nine nine seven percent of the stuff that doesn't impact my business and give me the point zero three percent of the stuff that does? Um, and that's analytics, and and that is a constraint now, and it'll probably be, continue to be a constraint. But once somebody gets that fixed, um, watch out. Yeah, yeah. Well, there, I know there's a lot of smart people, much smarter than than me, 
working on that problem. And speaking of another problem that I can't solve, multi-phase flow, <laughs> how engineers control and separate mixtures. This is a really interesting article just to even look at. Um, so, so dive in, Mark. Yeah, I'm actually surprised. This is like some very deep in engineering stuff that you brought in, which is it's cool. It's a little bit different. So basically, when you're when you're in production, you don't just get oil out of the ground. You get all kinds of crap. You get oil, you get gas, you get water, you get sand, and you need to separate all that stuff. So multi-phase flow is as is is the actual physical valves and process control stuff that actually uh, separates the stuff. And the more efficient you do it, the more money you make, basically. And so this is a, this is a really good article on how within marginal reserves, so the reserves that aren't easy money, that you having the right multi-phase flow can make the difference between being profitable and losing money. The right multi-phase flow, and and how do you control that when you're going down into a pay zone that you don't control? Well, it's not, it's not actually you're not it's not when you're going down. It's when you're at production. So at the wellhead or, or right past the tree is when you, you actually start separating all the stuff. And it also depends if you're onshore or offshore and if you're doing things subsea or topside. Okay. But at some point, from an engineering point of view, you're separating all these different. And in some wells, you actually have to separate heavy oil from light oil, and then fresh water from salt water, and then um, uh, fragments from from sand. So it actually gets very complex. And it's, uh, it's actually cool. First thing, I, from an engineering point of view, I think it's cool you can do this at all because you're not doing this at like two gallons per minute at 10 PSI. You're doing this at like 100 gallons per minute at you know 1,500 PSI, which is an engineering challenge through the roof. And then just think about sand flowing that fast, how it would abrade most metals. So I've actually been lucky enough to tour some of the facilities that actually manufacture these, um, these multi, uh, multi-phase flow pieces of equipment and the, the trees that do this sort of stuff and the process controls that sit on the subsea. And, and to see the engineering that goes into these devices and, and things like Incadel, you know, Incadel is an extremely hard metal, very anti-corrosive. And so they'll actually go in and, and weld inside of these flow controls, Incadel, so it can stand up to the abrasion of the, the sand going through. And it's just, like I say all the time, you know, this makes NASA engineering like a bunch of Lego builders. So there's a picture of a choke valve down here. Let's talk about what a choke valve does. The choke valve is just your ability to control the flow, right? And it, it's there's on a, there's there'll be multiple choke valves in a tree, and also actually in a blowout preventer too, because you're trying to change the either the velocity or the pressure of what's going through that pipe. And this is getting deep into the into the weeds here. Um, so I I don't want to go too far, but I know that a lot of people that listen to the show, um. Are are newer ish to to oil and, to oil and gas, or are, are just learning? I mean, what what do you what is the main takeaway that 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 you think uh, a newbie like myself, because I'm still a diaper baby <laughs> after at five and a half years. So, what's what's the main thing to take away from this article? So so think about the globe. So everything from the unbelievably hot desert in the Middle East to like the freezing temperatures in the Arctic, the ability to separate 6, 8, 12, 13 components in a liquid at a very high volume reliably and effectively is just crazy insane. Um, and, and, and that's one well. Think how many wells are doing this all over the world. So when you think about that, the thing you need to take away from this is, is once again, engineering is just vital in this industry. Yeah. So – Tell your kids to become engineers, <laughs> not Facebook people like me. Um, Carrizo Oil and Gas expanding into the Permian. We haven't really touched on anything Texas lately. So Carrizo, I, and now I just want to eat some chorizo. 
<laughs> yeah, it's um, this is a good article, and and you know, let me preface this by you know, James and I are not a professional stock investors. Don't use our um, information to go out and spend your money. Do your own research. But um, this is a really cool article. If you, if you read in detail, what Carrizo's doing is actually going out and buying submarginal assets, but they're so good at production that they're actually be able to make money at it. And think about it, James, they're doing it in this low crude price environment, which, you know, how cool is that? And this is all about being as maximally efficient as possible and then buy an acreage that other people don't want to touch where you know you can make some money. And they're actually doing money and they're actually doing pretty darn good. How big of a company is Carrizo? Um, you know, actually, James, I have no idea. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I um, all right, well, Google is right before us. So Carrizo Oil and Gas Wiki, uh, let's see here. Uh, what? Oh, oh, they don't have a wiki page on them. They're not big enough for that. Uh, <laughs> trading, well, you know, trading, uh, trading right now at thirty-eight twenty-three on the Nasdaq. Yeah, well, then you have to know how many shares they have. So yeah. maybe you need a fact checker out there to let us know um, how big Carrizo is. Yeah, good call. Go, uh, go ahead, and you can email me, James at triberocket.com, or Mark. Is it Mark dot Lacour? Yeah. <laughs> It always my my Gmail just guesses it. Um, Mark Lacour at modalpoint.com or go to the show notes at triberocket.com forward slash tw34. Let us know about Carrizo. But I want to go back to this point that you were making about this is it, it just seems silly <laughs> right now that that there this is this is the type of story that that you and I and and especially myself one point I always make. To people that are like, well, you, you, what? How's your business doing with oil prices, <laughs> dude? This is a twenty-five trillion. I mean, how many trillion-dollar pie? You can't go. You can't go find a few million. <laughs> you know. Right. Um. And and so this is a great. I love this because because it's it's an it's an operator, um, or anyone in this industry that's going. You know what? Yeah. Uh. Forget forget those oil prices. We're gonna go make a bunch of money. Well, and, and it's it's somebody that's looking at their business and knowing what their key strengths are, what or they're really good at, and then looking at how they can apply that to the market in a way that's profitable. And that's just classic American capitalism. So hats off to them. Yeah, that's great. All right, and hats off as well. The late great shale state, how Pennsylvania became a, a leading gas producer and what it means today. Yeah, what it means today is uh, Pennsylvania is just rocking and rolling. We talked about this in the last show where that big chemical company in Europe who's about to go bankrupt uh, was able to save themselves from partnering a deal with Pennsylvania and buying their gas to make ethylene for the ethylene crackers. I mean, so Pennsylvania saved this European company from going under. Um, this is all – not to say all, but this is a big part of the, their governor, um, Tom Colbert, who saw the writing on the wall, saw the fact that Pennsylvania had all these great resources and needed the right legislation and laws and um, attitude in place to help nurture this industry. And I, somewhere in his article, he's talking about let's make um, Pennsylvania the Texas of natural gas. And I just – what a great statement, right? And the the prosperity that he's brought to the state and the amount of revenue and the amount of jobs, and it's just – you know he did a really great job – you know, and I make fun of politicians, but here's a politician doing the right thing for his state and for his constituents. So, you know, kind of hats off to Tom. I hope he's listening. Yeah, and and so they they talk about game changer in ethylene cracker because it seems that he was targeting that from from the early days. Yeah, he saw he saw that that would be a competitive advantage. There's the world has a huge appetite for, for ethylene. 
or, or yeah, for ethylene. And the ability to stand up ethylene crackers close to natural gas, which is the feed source for ethylene crackers, w- w- is smart, right? You make money, you create jobs, you can export it. And so um, he saw this coming early on and did everything required to get the companies to come build ethylene crackers in Pennsylvania because they had the raw feedstock. And at the same time, he also encouraged the um, gas companies to, to um, go into production so the raw feedstock would be there. Well, 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 damn. We need more guys like this guy. <laughs> we need more guys like this around. Um, all right. So uh, I didn't send you the onion because you love it so much. And you, you're not even a sports guy. You definitely won't find it funny. The Weekly Onion NBA Cares program sends Chicago Bulls players to spend time at hospital visiting Derrick Rose. Trust me, Mark, that is hilarious. I believe you. <laughs> and we have a, a few different things coming up. Um, let's start with the one that you emailed me though, because I don't want to forget about that. It is a, oh, the PDF is still loading. Um, what is, what is the event? Go ahead. All right. So this is what's called the program for excellence in selling. This is university of Houston has a sales excellence program. So you can actually get a minor in sales, which I think is really cool. And the top 10% of those students are in the sales excellence program and they make them go out and do sales stuff. So they have a call center in the campus that's uh, fully um, staffed. I mean, fully um, all the technology provided by Cisco. They have Salesforce provided, and they go out and do things such as sell um, um, seats at this golf tournament or sell other type of things. And this helps the students learn sales from a real point of view, and then the money gets donated to charity. So this is a, a great golf event. It's at the Kingwood Country Club, October 26. A lot of oil and gas companies are there actually participating. So if you're a company that's looking to rub elbows with some of the big wigs in oil and gas, here's a great way for you to do it for relatively little money. Plus, you get to play golf, and the money ends up going to charity. I mean, how great is that? And so um, Christine Knight actually reached out to me. She's in the PEZ program at the University of Houston. So, James, we could stick a link up. Yeah, we'll, we'll put the link on the show notes with her, with her email address again at triberocket.com yeah. forward slash TW34. Yeah, and, and Modal Point supports us every year. In fact, it's getting to the point where I may, I may have to actually learn to play golf so one time I can actually go play. And shout out to Miss Bat Yasin who who broke the record last year. Um, oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. We uh, we had her. We listed her on our blog, and, and and through her hard work and a little bit of help from us, she did break the record. Yeah. So so that that's a really great uh, scenario as far as networking is concerned. Because not only do you have the industry there, you've got uh, you know some some higher ups from the universities there as well, and probably some pretty valuable contacts to make. Yeah, and then let me just tell you, if uh, you're looking to pick up interns, I've all my interns come to the University of Houston. What do you mean by and, pick up interns, Mark? No, I mean actually hire young professionals to do work for your company. Um, yeah, they, they, they're Salesforce certified at the end. Yeah, Salesforce certified. They're great. Yeah. I have three or four week working me at any time. So, um, and then we've got Oilcom Conference and Exposition down there at the George R. Brown here in Houston, Texas, November 4th through 6th. What's this conference? Yeah, I'll be there. So this is what it says. This is a conference on communications and oil. And you go, well, I don't have any interest in that. But think about it. Every rig in the world has offshore communications. So if you want to sell, let's say, software to Anadarko, guess what? You need communications. So um, working with the people that are in communications for these rigs offshore, forming strategic partnerships actually could benefit you. I love it because I get to see new technology. This is one of the places where new technology pops up quick and easy. And this is not a huge conference. It's a large conference, but it's not huge. So it's really easy to get out and talk to everybody there. So I'll be there. If you're going, hit me up on Twitter, uh, Mark underscore LaCour, and I'll be happy to connect. 
Yeah, and it seems that it says end user uh, attendees, and uh, like every company I could think of, as far as if they got their logos up there. So good place to be. And then the uh, Lausanne Gulf Coast Oil Exposition, October. Lago. Se- What's that? Lago. Lago, October twenty yeah, seventh. Oh, okay. All right. Well, I'm new, so I just okay. I just work here. Um, so so Lago is coming up. I, let me get out of your way so you can tell us tell us about Lago. So Lago happens every other year in Lafayette, Louisiana, and you know Lafayette, Louisiana is where I actually went to school. Hey, USL, which is now called U of L, so everybody thinks my diploma is fake. Um, <laughs> Right. It's 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 a small regional show, but it's one of the best shows. I actually have uh, tickets to go, and unfortunately, I have a conflict with clients, so I'm not going to be able to go. Uh, but Let if you get, get a chance, off you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, get a chance, go. And if you su- subscribe to my newsletter, you actually can go for free. Um, great regional show. You get to meet a lot of the key players in South Louisiana in the oil and gas industry, and the foods to die for. That's what I was about to say. I mean, it, like, it, it, it's how, I mean, you always get some oil people together. There's going to be a party. But in Lafayette, I think you just. Dude, they're be... bowling crawfish in the parking lot. There's <laughs> barbecue pits in the parking lot. It, it, is, it really is a case. You have to see it to believe it. But it's, it's what happens when a bunch of Cajuns get together. Going to have a fade out dough on the bio. <laughs> um, so. By you, actually. I, I know. I know. Yeah. It's a. Uh, are, are you actually hating on Hank Williams right now? No, no, no. That's, that's, <laughs> so, a North, that's a North Louisiana pronunciation. So if you're from South Louisiana, anything north of Baton Rouge is considered Yankee. <laughs> Perfect. All right. And then um, Deepwater Operations Conference coming up as well in Galveston. Yeah. So, so this is once again, what exactly what it says, this is all about deep water operations. I, you know, I, um, I'm not actually going to go into this one. I've been to it several times. Um, I'm a, a little bit curious about what's going to happen in this low crude price environment. It's going to be interesting to see if the operators are going to show up knowing that any anything they can do to help their business is beneficial or are the operators not going to show up because the low crude price environment is making them watch every penny. They don't want to end up at a show. But it's it's a great show, very highly technical show. So if, if you're in the engineering of, of deep water or ultra deep water, it's a good place for you to show up. So let me ask you a quick question then because I'm very familiar with NAEP and that's where deals happen, uh, hashtag and and so what what happens at the Deepwater Operations Conference? I mean, are are people doing people aren't doing business on the floor, are they? No, people. So deals are done there, but not on the floor. This this is a very technical conference. This is an engineering conference, and so what happens is you'll get an engineer. You know, you'll get a a, a Deepwater engineer for somebody like Exxon, who's actually. Um, one of the participants in a panel or whatever, and then he'll be happy to listen to a presentation by a, um, a, a engineer in some service company from you know Norway that has a new way that they um, decommission wells to maximize efficiency. And so what happens? They will connect after the show, lunch or drinks or whatever. And, and they'll form that relationship and eventually they'll start doing business because the deep water engineer sees the benefit in, in the new decommissioning type of engineering. But it's it's a very technical relationship to relationship, if that makes sense. So I'm going to connect this back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the show or in the middle, wherever it was, in terms of the open sourceness. Because I had that exact thought when I was at uh, PNEC um, and I was in, in, in a very technical presentation and you've got, you know, this one engineer from one company and then a room full of engineers and they open the floor and they give really specific answers back and forth in terms of, well, how did you do this this way? And how did you do that that way? So is the is the issue, it doesn't, 
is it like a micro versus macro issue then? Because it seems like conferences, people are very open to sharing how they did what they did. Yeah. So it, it depends on the conference. And, and I have a, a decent amount of experience with this. It's um, some of the large companies refuse to let their engineers in a room with engineers from their competition because they're worried about trade secrets getting out because they know mm. people will share. And then other large companies see the advantage of peer-to-peer interactions, whether you're competition or not. And in my experience, and, and not to go too deep in this, but I, I did something years ago when I worked for Forrester Research where I got all the enterprise architects of Chevron, all their different business units, in one room together. And, and if people don't know this. The different opcos or business units of Chevron don't know each other. So Chevron E&P or Chevron Deepwater or Chevron Midcontinent don't even know the people that work in Chevron Pipeline or Chevron Aviation. And so just by getting them together and they're able to share stuff, it was unbelievably beneficial to them. Um, so to answer your question, I think it's almost by a company by company basis, but you still have to remember about the competitive differentiation, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I I don't want the people that are doing the really cool stuff at Mac, um, at Apple to be talking to people at Microsoft. I'm, I'm a Mac guy, right? I want to, I want to have that advantage. And so that, that still plays into the business of, of how this works. Yeah. And I should clarify as well. I'm, I'm not, I'm not all for the destruction of competition. I'm, I'm just more open source minded um, in, in terms of these things. But I'm a capitalist and, uh, and, and I'm all for um, trade secrets and, and secret sauce and everything. I just think that um, that quote unquote secret sauce is a little overemphasized sometimes. And, yeah, and, and you're right. There's, there's a lot of stuff I could point out in this industry that the industry as a whole would benefit from if there was more sharing of best practices and stuff. But um, that's a cultural thing, and that cultural thing is a hard thing to change in oil and gas. Well, maybe they'll be listening to this show long enough. Maybe episode we'll 345, we'll celebrate. <laughs> um, all right, let's 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 move on because we've got log, but I'm, I'm having a great conversation here. Um, Mark, yell at everyone for not getting any reviews to us because it's been we've been sitting at 32 for two weeks. Yeah, come on, people. You give this away for you free. This is hard work. If you knew what James and I have to go through sometimes just to get this 20, 30 minutes of stuff on the air, and, and we don't ask you for anything, but if you will just give us a review, it helps us spread the love, helps us find other people just like you that we can help. So take two minutes, um, follow the links that James gives you, go to iTunes, give us a, a, sorry, give us a review, and whether that review is one star or five star, just you know, let us know what you're thinking. It helps us make the show better for you. Absolutely. And that's at tribrocket.com forward slash TW reviews or review. So tribrocket.com forward slash TW review or reviews. And um, so we are two weeks away. Last uh, last week, we got one question after the show. And so we were two weeks away from the first Friday Q&A. So just go to tribrocket.com forward slash QA to submit your questions, whatever you want to know about the oil field that we are not getting into on the show, go to tribrocket.com forward slash QA, submit your question and or and or um, leave us a voicemail. And if you leave us a voicemail, we'll play it on the show on the 6th or something like that. I think so that's the first Friday. And then and then, oh, my goodness, we got to celebrate, baby. It's time to party. We doubled in size on the LinkedIn group. Are you kidding me? We doubled in size? That is some horrible acting once again. <laughs> so you're telling me we went from one to two people? <laughs> yes. Yes. My mom and my sister, they both joined. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, no, we went from so we we launched it sometime in July with four. We got over four hundred people within twenty four hours, and now we just passed eight hundred people. So everyone yeah. who's taken the time to to share this show and to to join the LinkedIn group and join the conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we do this show, as I said in the group, we do the show for you and we would not be here without you. So thank you for, for following through. And if you want to, it's triberocket.com forward slash LinkedIn. You got anything on that, Mark? Yeah, folks, if you listen to the show and you're not a member of a LinkedIn group, you're missing out. So go join. There's a lot of peer-to-peer interaction. You're with a bunch of people in the oil and gas industry, and there's a lot of best practices being shared, contacts being shared, advice being shared. I've seen James actually help people do some technical writing. You know, so how cool is that? So take two minutes, go join our LinkedIn group. You'll you'll be glad that you did. All right. So we got we got the reviews, we got the questions, we got the LinkedIn, everything is covered, and we're at about 45 minutes. So maybe we should get out of here. Yeah, folks, uh, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Go find some grease, guys. take a picture this is just but it worked so i'm not gonna say anything <laughs> it's just bizarre i got two computers running i got one microphone on one side of the room i got cords running over my legs i mean just <laughs> crazy shit.